Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Welcome back to How Soccer Explains Leadership. Thank you again for being a part of this show. Thanks for your download and for engaging in the conversation. Today, as usual, we have a great guest that I'm very excited to have a conversation with and really just you know most of you have probably heard of this guy some of you may have not if you haven't you definitely need to check out his books which we will talk about and I just learned from him on how you can use the different tools really that he's been able to help us understand you know some of these are pretty complex topics that he's been able to bring down to a non PhD level for us so this guy is Dan Abrams and he's from the UK and he's actually got a little bit different background than most of the soccer folks here. You know, he, he started on the, on the golf course. I don't know if he started on the golf course, but he was a pretty good golfer in his day. And uh, somehow he has come to be an expert in the soccer world with sports psychology. And, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of blushing over there on this. I'm looking on the other side, but I know that he's been described as, I'm sure, this way many times. But who we have is Dan Abrams. And uh, Dan, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good, Phil. I'm honored and delighted to be speaking with you today. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I could have spent the whole hour doing your, your resume and your bio, but you know, people can check you out at that. What's your, what's a website? DanAbrahams.com. Nice and simple. It is simple. We'll have that in the show notes as well. And you can get all the background and uh, everything you want to know about Dan. Dan, can you also just share the, the books that you have written? And, you know, I'm going to point people to those books. We're not going to go into super detail in any of those because folks you can read them and I encourage you to read them it's phenomenal stuff so can you just real quickly run down those yeah sure so my first book I wrote was Soccer Tough which several months ago Gareth Bale very kindly said was his favorite book uh, the book that mm-hmm. has influenced him most and then I followed that up with a book called Soccer Brat, which is predominantly for coaches. Soccer Tough is both for players and coaches. And then I decided to do a sequel to Soccer Tough, brilliantly named Soccer Tough 2. Yeah, that's, uh, that's was, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Which is most inventive of my publisher and myself to come up with that <laughs> title. And uh, if anybody is interested in golf, I also wrote Golf Tough. So lots of tough going on here, but Golf Tough. So those are the four books that I've written. All right. Yeah. And, and I did notice the subtitles of the Soccer Tough books had football in the subtitle. So is that, <laughs> yes. is that confusion on the publisher's part? Or was that a battle, in the, I imagine, in the back rooms of the uh, publisher going, okay, I, it's football, but you know we're trying to a lot of Americans, so we got to have soccer in there? Or is it just going, I, I mean, I was curious about that, so I, I had to ask. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, marketing, probably shameless marketing. There's there's no question that, I mean, we were just talking off air, air weren't we? We met for the first time a few weeks ago at the mm-hmm. United Soccer Coaches Convention, and we have nothing like that over here in, in, in the UK or in Europe, for that matter. And everybody thinks about Europe being, I suppose, the, the centre of the, the soccer or footballing world. But over in America, I mean, your participation level, levels are through the roof, and you've got mm-hmm. more coaches than anywhere else. So, look... To be honest with you, I want to influence everywhere uh, globally, and it's been translated to a number of languages, which I'm very proud and humbled about. But I, we did feel, let's call it soccer tough, but let's put in that subtitle the, the, the word football. So there was no confusion. I, I was asked this the other day, you know, do you like using the word soccer? And I, I just, for me, you have to meet people where they're at. And so, you know, when I come over to the States, one has to respect that football for so many people, 
people over there um, is what we would call American football or NFL. That's fine. That's cool. You know, we're a, glo- we're a global community, right? And we just yep. got to meet other people's, meet each other's language. So it's all good with me. I love that. I love that. I talk about that all the time. And I mean, soccer, football is really the global language too. When we talk about meeting people with their language, it, it, it can connect anywhere. We just talked about Uganda before we recorded and, mm. you know, you go over there and you, you talk about football and, and they know what you're talking about and you can use the analogies. You can talk about different things and, you can connect with people on, like you can't really with anything else around the world. There's no, you know, I went to India. That was the one place maybe you got to know cricket. But and so I learned cricket because I wanted to be able to communicate with the folks in India. Well, for, um, funnily enough, Phil, just before you carry on, I mean, I, I actually work quite closely with the All Indian Football Federation. So you absolutely have to know cricket over there because it is just, there's a billion Indians in India and uh, it's an amazing country and cricket is their national sport. But, but soccer, football is growing heavily. Yeah. And if I would say actually, Actually, they are probably second to America in terms of volume of coaches. There's oh, wow. huge rafts of coaches over there, so it's it's getting bigger. Yeah, it's good to hear. It's good to hear. I just know, like in my in my hometown out here in California, there's these guys from India, and they're all in the little the football, you know, the little ice rinks that we are not the hockey rinks. They're not ice rinks. They're roller hockey rinks, of course, California, and they're playing cricket in the in the rink. And I'm just sitting there going, "How in the world do you guys play cricket? I know that these are massive fields." What the? So I, I'm I'm learning. I'm learning. So you know, I'm a lifelong learner. So I'm gonna. And if it's sports, it's easier for me to learn. All right. So let's take a step back and go. All right. You're a pro golfer. You know, you were a pro golfer. I mean, you're not on the Masters, you know, the, the senior circuit, as far as I know. <laughs> no, no. And, not old enough either for that. Uh, don't uh, don't uh, age me too much there. Sorry about that. Sorry <laughs> about that. But how did you end up, how did, you know, just share your story a bit with people who don't know who you are. And, and I don't really know the story either. Just how did you end up going from golf to, you know, not just writing books, but really becoming a go-to, you know, sports psychologist for a lot of people in the soccer world. And, and how'd you get to be where you are today? And, and really what excites you about where you are today? Yeah. So look, I, I was a, a teenager playing golf. It was the, the sport I eventually specialized in. And I, I knew I wanted it in my future in some capacity. And I wasn't the most gifted at the game. And I started to look holistically to improve and I was a teenager who read uh, I think at 15 16 years old I was reading Timothy Galway's in the game of golf right I was my mother probably somewhat prudently bought me a theoretical sports psychology book when I was about that age and I think it was a kind of out of love for my interest in, in all things sport and psychology and stuff like that but also out of concern for well if you don't make it as a golfer then here's a potential backup which actually proved to be something that came true but I I left school at 18 announced to my parents I was going to be the best golfer in the world realized pretty quickly I wasn't going to compete with Tiger Woods or at least I could carry on trying to but would continue to be living in a kind of with not a lot of money and eating out of a baked bean tin can essentially so I what did I do I went into the pro shop at my my club I grew up and lived in London at the time so it was a club in London England and I uh, did my PGA qualifications I started to coach the game I was still playing a little bit on the side and I just continued to really be interested in sports psychology I saw sports psychologists as a player as I said I was reading books and I thought you know what 
I'm going to go to university, because I hadn't been to university. I was, went to university in my mid-twenties. I did a first degree in psychology as I was coaching golf. So it's this wonderful combination of coaching sport. And in golf, you're, you're coaching 40 hours a week. You know, you're a full-time coach. You, you know, you, you're doing that and you're, you know, you're, you're really honing your coaching skills and your communication skills. So I was doing that. Did my psychology degree, did my master's degree in sports psychology and came to a crossroads. Was I going to carry on doing the golf and sort of have the sports psychology there as uh, an additional thing? Or was I going to leave golf behind, essentially, and go off and become a, a registered, qualified sports psychologist? And I chose to do the latter for several reasons. The, the intellectual challenge, not that coaching isn't intellectually challenging, it absolutely is. And these days, in the current climate, you're now getting coaches who've got you know, masters and PhDs and, 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 and stuff. And maybe here in the UK, now I might, may have made a different decision based on that. But I also wanted to work in other domains. Um, so I wanted to work in other sports and I wanted to work in, say, the corporate uh, environment and, and public sector and things like that. So that interested me. And I, I just was really interested in psychology and that sort of side of coaching and that side of competing and participation and stuff. So that's what I did. So 15, 16 years ago, I started to become a that full-time registered sports psychologist, left the golf behind me. And I, I was always a golfer who kind of, I listen to sports psychologists speak. Now, as a sports psychologist, you can work across all sports. Of course you can, and you should do. However, I was, I was, when, I, when I was a golfer, I kind of listened to some sports psychs speak about golf, and I thought, oh, it's, I see what you're saying, but you're saying it in a way that I'm not too sure I want to come and speak to you more about this. Mm. And I, I think I was a bit unfair about that. Because clearly now I've worked in lots of sports where I'm definitely not an expert in that sport and I don't necessarily know their language. And I think sometimes, actually, that can be an advantage, you know, and that could be for the good for the, for the player, that they mm -hmm. haven't got somebody who has been kind of cluttered up with having a history in the game. So there's that. But at that time, I thought, you know what, I really want to specialise. I know golf like the back of my hand. What else can I really specialise in? English, love football, love soccer. I was a Spurs supporter growing up when, you know, when I... Predominantly grew up as a teenager in the 90s, so that was quite painful supporting Spurs at right. that time. And and anyway, so I managed to attain at a non-league side here in England, basically step six in the pyramid, in the huge pyramid that we have here, so step six. And I just started to learn and learn and learn, learn the language, learn the specific challenges that players face, work with a lot of players who'd come down from Premier League academies, championship, English championship academies. And it kind of snowballed from there. And I started to work with Premier League players. I started to work quite a bit with West Ham players at the time without being employed by the club. And, and just really was traveling up and down the country, working with so many different players, so many different coaches, wrote my book, wrote my next books, worked, started to work with teams, Gained some contracts in Premier League clubs, built from there, and really, I suppose, garnered a global attention. You know, if that's how you want to describe it, without being too grandiose and over the top mm -hmm. about it. But within the world of soccer, just because I just, I, I just really focused my efforts there, and I was really passionate about trying to demystify this stuff, yeah. make it as practical as possible, integrate psychology the the biopsychosocial elements for coaches and and yeah that's that's kind of how it's all, all built and so that brings us up to speed i think absolutely and and you know you've seen people 
not just care about it, but really are diving into it now. I mean, and so what, what excites you about, you know, kind of when you started versus where we are today and, and really people understanding mindset and the importance of it? Yeah, look, I, I suppose if, we, if we're going to relate this to, to soccer, then I would say when I started, I mean, geez, I was like, I, sometimes I was in rooms with people that I was kind of pinching myself and it was just like, I'm here with this person, this person is listening to me and these, this coach here who's coached, who's managed England, he wants to actually have a conversation with me and he's actually asking questions and then with players you're thinking, wow. So, of course, at the beginning there was that for me and then pretty quickly as happens with us as human beings, we normalise those kind of things pretty mm-hmm. quickly and now I can walk into it. By and large, there will be a few people out there who would go, oh, this is pretty cool right now. But that normalises pretty quickly. I think really what's grown for me and maybe if i may say i mean one thing i left off my biography there was my own a podcast the sports psych show and and i think over the years i started as a sports psychologist coming from that playing and coaching background and if you look at my early work i would say my early work was very very was quite was i don't want to say it's more layperson than now because I think it's important to translate it, demystify it and keep it in a layperson. I'd like to think I do a good job now. I didn't really seek out much of a scientific underpinning back then. I would say through my podcast, through my relationships with some of the leading academics globally within sports psychology, perhaps where I've shifted from a demystification, what, what excites me and where I've shifted from a demystification perspective is I want to take the work of the world's best sports psychology academics, coaching science, skill acquisition science, take that and demystify that so that these fairly complex theories as best I can are simplified but no simpler, you know, not not completely getting, and, and understanding complexity is going to be involved, but I suppose stripping away the complication as much as possible. And I think that excites me more today than it did 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I was probably a bit more, ah, science, ah, kind of, kind of. Now I'm like, yeah, this is really cool. I love this scientific theory. Right. What does this mean for a player? What does this mean for a coach? How can we help them interpret this? Why is this important? So that's probably where I'm at a bit more now. I love it. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I actually had the sports psych show in the, in the, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that folks, you know, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Check that out. If you're on this podcast, you like podcasts, that's definitely a podcast. If you're listening to this, you want to be a part of because it goes a lot deeper than we're going to be able to go into this stuff today. And you can go get as much of this as you want. And that's the beauty of the podcast is in the medium. And that's what I mean, I think you you love as well is the ability and we, we actually met on clubhouse you know and so it's like that that medium of just being able to have conversations and get to the nuances of these things that you know black and white in a book if you have a question about something you, you can't just go hey what's the what's the answer to this but but on a podcast usually when you get into a conversation and we'll be able to hopefully do this a little bit today we can ask that next question we can ask and go wait i didn't quite understand it because we all are 
we all are bit by the curse of knowledge, right? I mean, we know what we know, and we forget that everyone else doesn't know all the lingo. You know, I'm just, as a recovering attorney, as I say, I say a lot of things that people are like, what are you talking about? And I've, you know, over 13, <laughs> last 13 years since I practiced, I, I kind of have gotten a lot of that out of there. But you say things and you just forget that, oh, yeah, they don't know Latin, you know, <laughs> and I'm using these words and whatever. Well, it's, it's funny to say that because I, I've really, you know, when I sit down and I read academic sports psychology texts, which is so important for me to do, it is so challenging now. Mm-hmm. I'm just, it takes me so many reads. Not, I, I, I don't profess to be the, the most intelligent person on the planet, but I'm not the daftest or the dumbest. And, and it does take me a lot of reads because I just think you get out of that habit. You know, if you stay in the world of academia, you just get used to, you read it, you read it, you read it you're doing it all the time. So you get used to that kind of language. And as you said, as an attorney, you're, you know, you, 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 you build a catalogue of, of language, of, of words, of sentences and phrases that you're used to that others aren't. So it's a fascinating thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so important, like you said earlier, to meet people where they are, but also not dumb things down. Because, and you talked about that complexity. I mean, we need to make the complex simple to a certain extent, but you can't gut it from its meaning and and help, right? You know, and so, you know, we can talk about mind one versus mind two instead of the, you know, whatever the the scientific terminology is. And that's all fine, you know, and I'm going back to the other mediums and other sports, you know, Inner Game of Tennis is another book out there that has made its waves and Pete Carroll and all this stuff using it with the USC team and and as a Bruin fan that's why I didn't want to ever read it but but that's a you know but these are the things that we can go across and we can use these different tools and different sports that you know maybe someone that knows golf can read the golf book and be able to then it makes sense right you know and to be able to say that so going going back to that you know that idea of you know you being this golfer coming into the the football world are these principles where you look at it and you go, golf is more of a mind game than, than football? You know, you hear that people saying, oh, golf is just all mental game, right? And you and I both know, so is football, right? But I think, can you speak to that a bit when people say, oh, yeah, we just got and kicked the ball around, it's no big deal, <laughs> versus golf where it's obvi- a little bit more obvious, I think, as far as the mental game on, on it, golf? Uh, yeah. It, it, it feels more obvious, doesn't it? But the interesting thing about golf is you've got five laws of the Im- of impact that you know that that you've got to adhere to, and and so mechanics and biomechanics technique does matter. You know, you can look at look at the world swings and you can say, oh, they're a little bit different, but there's a lot of similarities to them, mm-hmm. and so and so golf is still a technical game smothered with a great deal of mental challenges. No doubt about it. There's obviously there's a lot of time to think in golf. It's a self-paced sport. But the interesting dynamic here is, uh, and is that let's frame it this way. I do get a lot of people historically who have said to me, "Well, Dan, how is how is soccer a, a, a psychological sport? You know, it's such a quick sport. You know, there's no time to think." And that's a complete misunderstanding of the way the brain and the nervous system is structured and how it functions. The interesting thing is that while soccer 
and you could say say basketball while soccer works in milli uh, in, in 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 seconds sorry the brain and the nervous system work in milliseconds mm -hmm. they're throwing out thoughts and feelings uh, shaped as judgments all the time so we've got this brain and nervous system working in milliseconds we have evolved as human beings to utilize these uh, thoughts feelings emotions in milliseconds to judge what's going on around us we tend to scan for threats and problems both externally which is called exteroception and internally which is called interoception and so think about it now, you, you know, if you can picture, if you're listening in and you're a coach and you can picture your soccer players playing, consider the internal that is driving or influencing the external. Consider the brain and the nervous system constantly judging what's going on around, constantly tuning into how the body feels at any given moment. And so it is a highly, in terms of what's happening on the field, from an intrapersonal perspective, it is heavily mental because that's how our brain and nervous system is designed. Also, one has to remember the game is complicated. You know, if human beings are complex, the game is complicated. It's, let's come back to it, it's a quick sport. There's a lot of challenges going on at any given moment that demand, that place a lot of demands on our cognitive system, our mental processes, if you like, our perceptual abilities our pattern recognition we've got to do a lot all at the same time and so and we've got to do that whilst we coordinate our muscles so it's for me from a mental and a cognitive perspective it's highly psychological and then outside of the intrapersonal challenges you've got the interpersonal challenges it's it's like mm -hmm. i've got to deal with all of that, all of that and i've got to be a great teammate and I've got to try and influence, which the best coaches want their players to be able to learn and develop and be able to, you know, do during performance. So it's heavily demanding intrapersonally and interpersonally. And I would actually say, as a golfer, there's several things going on here as well that make golf a little bit easier in many respects from a psychological perspective. And that's that I don't have any teammates. Right. Like I'm, if I'm good and I'm at top level, I've got a caddy and I've mm -hmm. got to communicate them. And then off the course and on the practice ground, I have to learn how to communicate with my coach and foster relationships there. But I don't have any teammates that I've got to deal with. That that makes a big difference there from the, from the interpersonal demands. And then the other thing, the interesting dynamic at the very highest level is... In golf, of course, you have to qualify for the tours that you want to play on. But by and large, when I turned pro, I could just go and play on, you know, my, my, my local regional tours professionally. As a professional, you're always going to be able to find, find something to play in. And as a top amateur, you're going to be able to do that. Now, as a soccer player, you ain't always going to be picked for the team. Right. You're going to be benched quite often, you know. And there's a whole raft of psychology, psychological dynamic underneath that. There was every single day, not every day, but every week, I seem to be having a conversation with a player, young and mid, uh, and sort of mid-career and, and late in the career, where players are dealing with the emotion around not being picked mm -hmm. or clubs rejecting them. And that feels, that taps into the stress response because a big part of stress is you know the brain's propensity to look towards control and it, it makes us feel out of control you know when we're not picked for a team it makes us feel helpless you don't get that in golf 
So there's that interesting dynamic. Now, of course, coming back to golf, just briefly to finish off here, of course, it's a, it's a self-paced sport. There's more time to think. And, you know, down the back nine on a Sunday in a major championship, you know, it is tough. It is hot. Of course it is. And you, you've got to be responsible for yourself. It is challenging in that way. There's lots of similarities. There's lots of differences. I just think every, probably everything, but every sport is is biopsychosocially driven. It biopsychosocial and the interaction between biology, psychology and social the social environment is always there. It's always happening every second on the court, the course, the pitch, the field, the gym, the swimming pool. And we've got to find ways to intentionally become better at the biopsychosocial side of the game. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and you know, like I said before if this stuff is brand new to you, go grab the books because we're not even going to be able to go. I mean, I could go on for three and a half hours just with that answer to unpack it, but we're not going to because you can find that elsewhere. And I, I will, I will, I'm going to continually point you to the sports psych show, to these books, because you can go and learn more about this, you know, biosocial, psychosocial. If that is completely, you're going, what in the world are you even talking about? You know, you break those down, biology, psychology, social, sociology, right? So these different aspects of ourselves, of our games, of, of what we're doing, and really it's life, right? I and mean, it's not just sports. And that's why we have this show, right? I mean, how soccer explains life and leadership, right? I want to go to jump onto something that you talked about there, though, the, that soccer and when we talk about leadership, and you have this concept we discussed a little bit on Clubhouse called teamship, Right. And can you talk about that a bit and why it's important, what it is and why it's important? Okay. Yeah, cool. So teamship, I mean, I suppose it's, it's my term for the theory and practice of working, playing really as simple as that. I mean, I think we had some fascinating conversations on Clubhouse, didn't mm -hmm. we? And I kind of tried to, as, as I have, <laughs> have a tendency to do, so apologies for this, throw a grenade into the room. I think <laughs> the, the room that you had was leadership, and it was a fantastic room. And have, you, have you still got that, by the way? Oh, we were talking about starting it up again, but it's kind of yeah. the Clubhouse scene in the, in the soccer world has kind of died out a little bit. But yeah. we're, we're talking yeah. about maybe yeah, trying I, to get some people to get back on there. But I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I, I, I came off of it as well because Clubhouse just seem to be dying a, a, a bit of a death but I I think I your room was about leadership and I said you know what is fascinates me not just leadership but teamship because I think that sometimes in my career I've sat down with coaches and coaches have said to me Dan Dan we've got to work on I want I want more leaders I want more leaders you know I want I've got I think I've got about three and I want six or seven leaders and when I sat down and, 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 I, and I've just asked questions around that I've kind of always felt not not always I've often felt that what they actually wanted were players who were better teammates mm -hmm. as opposed to leaders or in addition to leaders. You know, for me, leadership is more about asserting and guiding. And you can have all kinds of personality characteristics related to that, but it's more about asserting and guiding. Whereas for me, teamship is more about really fulfilling kind of formal and informal commitments that work towards team cohesion. And towards team objectives so uh, it's, it's about being a great teammate and really I in my work I divide that into four you know what it what comes underneath teamship and I think for me it's it's if we look from a cohesion perspective it's social cohesion which is essentially a sense of connectedness mm -hmm. 
uh, amongst teammates. Then you've got task cohesion, which I think is often left out. And that's basically basically the will and the ability to help each other ch achieve the tasks that you set out to strive to achieve. Then there's something, there's two other things then. For me, there's sh creating shared mental models, which is basically knowing each other's role to achieve a task. So basically being able to look through the lens of your teammates and see the world through their eyes. And then you've got something called social identity, which is basically group membership, you know, feeling a member of the group. So we've got social cohesion, task cohesion, shared mental model, and social identity. And when I go into a team, if I get the opportunity to sit down with coaches and talk to them about teamship, basically the practice of working and playing together as a team, those are the four themes or factors we're often talking about and working around and looking at, well, what can we bring into activities and training sessions that is going to develop these things? What kind of communication and 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 things do we have to do in and around the training ground and the clubhouse, etc., that are going to improve these things. So that's really, that's, I, I, for me, that would be an overarching kind of summary of, of what I think about teamship. Yeah, absolutely. And as you talk about the teamship with the teams, something else we've talked about is this motivational climate of a team. And, mm -hmm. and, and what does that have to do with teamship? What does that have to do with culture? We hear so much of the culture of the team, right? And I think too many coaches skip to we just need to have a healthy culture without having the pieces of the puzzle mm. in the foundation of that culture built up and as you talked about you skip the task you skip teammates fighting for each other and wanting each other to succeed which is a huge part of a team that you talked about is different from golf right where you you have these extra things on top of it where we should be if you have a healthy team and a healthy culture you will be cheering each other on to succeed not wishing each other's failure so you get to play more right that's that so what does that look like what is this idea of motivational culture how does that fit in how does that all that fit in with yeah well motivational climate i mean that certainly does have a relationship with teamship because if you've got some motivational climate in in very simple broad terms is the direction motivation is oriented towards you know what are we motivated by and again, stripped back, motivational climate can go in one of two directions, essentially. And again, this is this is this is quite stripped back, but by and large, this is how motivational climate works. We can be ego and performance oriented, which is very much other referenced, which basically means wanna win, wanna win, wanna win. Gotta beat others, gotta beat others, gotta play better than others, gotta play better than others. You know, so very endemic at the elite and developing elite level possibly the college level as well so oriented and youth sport as well probably mm -hmm. much to the detriment of participation possibly mm -hmm. probably the other way to orient motivation is towards mastery or task so those two names probably speak for themselves mastering our skills we are self-referenced mastering our skills, putting in effort levels to mastery skills, going out and, and striving to complete controllable tasks and doing both of those things as individuals and as a group, as a team. And so needless to say that if we think of ego stroke performance being red and we think of task mastery being green, 
We probably, as a coach, want to help players orient more towards the green, the task mastery, if people can picture that, being self-reference. If we can team around that, what do we want to achieve? What are our tasks here as individuals and as a team? Can we team around that? Can we be, can we, this is task cohesion. Can we focus on these things and help each other there with these things? Now, of course, let's go back to this word complexity. It would be crazy to, as a sports psychologist, to say, well, we must only be there. We can only be in the green. What we know from research and clearly what we know from practice are very good players do orient towards the red. You know, some very good players and, 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 and people who find themselves motivated by, I really want to win. I want to beat this person or this other team. I want to do well. Of course, that's a motivator. Of course, that's a motivator. But what we know is a, it's probably a healthier and safer a healthier and safer culture or environment orients towards that green whilst not ignoring the red, ego and performance. Mm -hmm. We might use that in our communication from time to time. We might have some outcome and performance objectives, but mainly have task and process and mastery objectives. Yeah. It's, it's, where does that sweet spot lie? It is an art and it's not an exact science and you can't get it right all the time. The final thing to say here is the problem with everybody being in the red is you could argue that historically that whilst some of those, whilst we can point to, let me, let me be bold here, and I might point to Manchester United for a period of time under Sir Alex Ferguson. Now, I'm not going to dispute the brilliance of Sir Alex Ferguson and the brilliance sure. of those players, but, you know, uh, partaking in the industry over here and having a lot of in, a little bit of insider knowledge and, and speaking with, with players, that was a very challenging culture that they had. That I do think some participants within that culture look back and think, Oh, that was that was hard. That was tough. That wasn't necessarily very healthy mm -hmm. or safe. Prime example in the last two weeks, Wayne Rooney coming out and talking about yeah. an alcohol problem. He had a problem with mental health, a challenge with mental health, and being unable to be open and vulnerable, mm -hmm. vulnerable about that. So, and and that maybe does extend from this ego stroke performance climate. And really, we have to. For me, we have to strive up, strive to turn up the volume of how do we help create these healthier motivational climates, task mastery, process cohesion, vulnerability, psychological safety, psychologically informed environments where we have better conversations about who is in this environment. How do we help them? feel um, included, autonomy supportive coaching, uh, as much or more so than controlled coaching, right the way through to how we deliver the practices on the field. It's all interconnected, yeah. and that's what makes it complex. Absolutely, and, and that goes back to just the simple principles of both and rather than either or. Right. Uh, yeah. Love and that. it is a both and it has to be a both and right. Mm -hmm. It's it's not one or the other. Now, I will say and I think you hit on this 
early on in the answer, and I, I, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm just going to ask the question: Do you think that going, you know, the red, the the ego, and that that driver, others being your motivator rather than internal, do yep. you see that in that coaching and those environments foster burnout? much more than the other. I would suggest that research would suggest that that can be the case. And my experience is I've been blessed to work in Premier League soccer for the last 15, 16 years. And I've seen and been in a lot of environments that aren't healthy or safe, in my opinion, in terms of they're not happy places. They're not places, happiness is, a, is possibly the wrong word. They're not places where I felt that human beings are thriving and flourishing, both professionally and personally, and especially yeah. personally. They can be quite unhappy places. And look, of, of course, there's, we're human beings and we have to go to work. And, 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 and of course, there's going to be inherent stresses in that. Life isn't all sunshine and flowers, as Rocky would say. But there's a, there's, we, we, we probably, probably would like to create environments that, that are going to be as healthy and as safe as possible. And, and I would say the research also suggests that in those kind of environments... And I think uh, I briefly read something on who just won the NFL, who just won the Super Bowl. Um, Right. My understanding is that you can only extract a certain amount of truth, if that's the right term, from an article. But seemingly positive psychology, Mm -hmm. the work of Martin Seligman and colleagues, has played a part there. That that seems to be quite an adaptive culture. There's always going to be different stories coming out about these things. And performance is always multidimensionally underpinned. But what we can pretty much suggest is that these kind of healthy and safe cultures aren't necessarily to the detriment of performance. We can perform and have healthy and safe environments. We've just got to be smart about it. We don't have to get up at four in the morning every single day and grind, right? Mm -hmm. Training doesn't have to be joyless and one-dimensional. There is always a time for effortful uh, practice, deliberate practice that isn't always fun, but we can have more enjoyable performing and playing in engaging environments. The last thing to say here is I do think whether you take motivational climate, whether you look at the motivational stuff around um, self-determination, intrinsic, extrinsic motivation, for me, it's really about helping individual players have a range across the continuum a range of motivational markers across the intrinsic extrinsic continuum there's nothing wrong with a player saying i really want to win this game Mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. driving me this week but i would also want to challenge that player or massage that player towards having also intrinsic motivation as well as well as well as lesser extrinsic motivation around identity and values but also interest and enjoyment i've worked with premier league players who simply have to go out one of them had to have what i call a game face of mates football mates soccer 
he had to imagine he was going out there playing with his mates because that helped him see the game through his creative eyes, through joyful eyes, Mm -hmm. that actually paradoxically helped him to work harder, put more effort in, have a better attitude. Motivation is an art, and it's very, very complex. Absolutely, and I look at just my two of my kids, my two youngest kids, my 10-year-old, very people-focused. He's, a, he's just wired where he's just, he loves people. He needs his friends. He needs always wanting to be with his buddies. And I talked with him actually just last night. We were driving home from his soccer practice, and he goes, Dad, how do you, like, if he's, he's really fixated on what it takes to be a pro, you know, and he's 10, right? So I said, well, just enjoy the game right now. But he goes, but Dad, but what does it take? And I go, well, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of work. You know, and, and, you know, like when the other day when you were on your hoverboard just goofing around, like a lot of the guys would be out the park juggling or whatever, right? But you're a kid, so don't worry about it. But and he goes, well, could I do it with my friends? And I said, well, you know, yeah, of course. I go, but, you know, well, there's one, one woman that I know that she went out and hit the ball a thousand times from the same spot. You know, I'm going to hit that spot. I'm going to hit that spot. And she, did, she was able to do that, right, on her own. He goes... I need to get a, my friend to go out with me, you know, and everything was, I need someone with me. I need someone with me. I need someone with me. My daughter, on the other hand, she's very, she is very intrinsically motivated. I mean, she, they have this online training with her Olympic development team and she's, she's going out and doing it. She was leading the whatever leaderboard that they had and they, you know, going back to the intrinsic, intrinsic, extrinsic. Yeah. Yep. And some people will be motivated by the leaderboard. She didn't really care. She was just going out and doing that. The coaches then said, so she was, she's one who will go out and she's out on her own, doing her own thing, dialed into that. And whether her friends are there or not, doesn't matter, but it's not as she loves friends and she loves having them, but it's not, that's not what is motivating her. Mm. But interestingly, the coach that had this, this online thing was really struggling getting the, a lot of the girls to do it. Understandably so, because a lot of them probably are wired like my son. Right, they just want to go out and play and with their friends, and that's their driver, which is nothing wrong with that. This coach says, "All right, we're going to have swag awards for the top performers now, and it's going to be interesting for me to see. Will that motivate more people to do it? Maybe. What do you think of that? With that extrinsic motivator coming in, is that a short-term thing that may have long-term impact? That's unintended consequences, or what's what's the research on that?" Yeah, well, when you said swag, I, I immediately thought of, thought of the work of Amanda and her brilliant work around uh, research on, on why kids participate in sport. And, and I think I, I'm going to butcher this here, but her research basically came up with, you know, kids were asked why you play and they were given multiple choice of, you know, choices, 40 odd choices. And they came up with why they play their top five reasons. And one of which, which I think came certainly far higher than winning. <laughs> which came very low down, but was swag, I don't know, top 10 or something. So I immediately thought of that. Mm. It is a reward, right? It is a reward. And that's, that is the, the least. So we go back to the work of Desi and Ryan, who've been studying motivation for 50 years, and they really pioneered, but they changed the landscape of motivation from purely motivation being reward and punishment towards a continuum. And at the far end is reward and punishment. You know, if you don't, you know, you will receive this if, if you're successful, you know, strive to do this to, to, to receive this. And then obviously punishment is the, is the other side of that. Right. Then still extrinsic, but slightly of better uh, quality is guilt and doing it for, if I don't do it, I feel guilty. If I do it, I feel pride. Then, then, then it goes on to, uh, I, I 
identity I want to say here. I identify with this. So it's to do with identification. Mm -hmm. And then still extrinsic is values. I value this. I value this. And then intrinsic motivation. Because intrinsic motivation is quite small. And it's purely about interest and enjoyment. So what Desi and Ryan are saying, it's not that extrinsic motivation is bad. It's just of lesser quality. It can still motivate you. It's just of lesser quality. And so what you might, the reason I'm answering it this way, Mike, always very long-winded way, is you might find uh, clearly that is going to motivate some people depend some kids depending on whether they find that motivating right. however the duration and the intensity and the duration of that intensity of motivation will possibly dwindle and that's what, what, the, what the, the research is based on is that they might be motivated to win that swag straight away but over time that motivation will possibly dissipate so the highest form of motivation is i do this because i'm interested in it I do this because I enjoy it. And so really from a, when I work with coaches, I'm saying, well, how can we, how do we tap into player interest? What, what is it about the game that interests them? What, what parts of the game interest them? What, are the, what parts of the game do they in, enjoy? Now, clearly, if you're functioning at the very highest level, there are always going to be parts that don't interest them and they don't enjoy. And that's just the reality of it. But still working on values and identity and things like that, that's, that's still that's extrinsic motivation. But those are still better quality forms of motivation than, than, than reward and punishment. So I, I, I say it can work. For some, it m- might just be fleeting that's yeah. all and that's that's yeah that's the dynamic of it it's kind of that idea of uh one of my favorite quotes c.s lewis duty is a substitute for love right this idea of you know the have to versus get to mentality i just talked with somebody about that and he worked with john wooden for a decade or so and he talked that was one of his big things i talk about that all the time that idea of the have to versus the get to right that guilt versus the you get to do it right i mean it's it's even just saying those words helps people be motivated better. I get to do this today. I get to do this today rather than I have to go to work. I get to go to work. And, and, and I think there's some really interesting things. I love that. I love that C.S. Lewis quote. And I love the conversation you had that, with that person there. And, and, and I think the get to feels more can be, can be healthier and safe safer can tap into curiosity and there's more in the last 20 years there's more and more research coming out I say more and more it's still early around having open goals what is called open goals rather than sort of fixed outcome or performance goals open goals being i'm just going to see how this goes here yeah you know, i'm going to engage in this and i'm just going to see how it goes and actually what you're doing that that feels quite fluffy but you're just you're 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 just exploring. You're exploring it. I'm not saying that's right for everybody, and it's not right for. It might be right for some people some of the time in some domains. It's right for me in some things, and not right for me in other things. So it, it reminds me what you're saying now, open goals, and the, and and then the, the converse of that is, is with the have to. I have to do this. I've set these objectives. I have to do it. Again, that can be useful because that can focus your attention. You can mm-hmm. it can motivate you and focus your attention. But equally, that can be a source of stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that could actually uh, create burnout, take you away from your sport, uh, means that you become avoidant or you self-handicap, so you feign injury and stuff like that. You see that all the time in pro sport. Or 
you just you experience anxiety uh, around it so it, you drop out uh, as well so it's it's that, that this is where it becomes complex yeah absolutely well that's that it reminds me too of the idea of pre-failing right you just talked about that right where you 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 a lot and i saw this a lot with my daughter where she would quit something when it became really hard because if she decided to do it then that was her decision but if she didn't make the team then that was failure right so this idea of pre-failure i don't know if there's some there's probably some more uh, scientific name for it but is that something that you see you see a lot of and i mean what does that look like at the different levels yeah i look i i perhaps in the moment struggling to think of the the, the science that underpins that I, i'll kick myself off this but i, I you know, immediately immediately makes me think of you know the cognitive scripts. There's a bit of science for you: the cognitive, the narrative, the inner story yeah. people and players have in and around the activities that they that they engage in, and you know the definitions that they have: what is success, what is failure. You know, yes, why am I doing this? But what is success and what is failure? And really, as a sports psychologist, I'm trying to broaden the definition of success. Uh, look, hey, I mean, it comes back to yeah, a, a, a relation to motivational climate is goal orientation. So, what are your goals? What are your objectives here? Right. And 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 maybe maybe presumption here. But if your daughter, if 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 she's just just defining success as I've got to be in the team, and then I've got to be the best player, and then I've got to score goals and keep clean sheets, and I, and again we come back to piling on anxiety here. What I do with clients, even 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 the Premier League clients, even the best players who people who might be construed as the best players in the world i'm trying to broaden their narrative around outcome and performance and say you know less ex more tolerant on performance maybe tougher on mindset maybe Mm -hmm. tougher on tasks controllable tasks maybe tougher on mastery but really really uh more tolerant on performance because we're so socialized especially at the adult elite level we're so socialized into Gotta win, gotta win, gotta win, gotta perform, gotta perform, gotta perform. Why am I doing this to get better? Why am I doing this to, you know, and that's the problem with the early professionalization or the early specialization or, you know, the narrative around that, which is what is sport for? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it's to get good at this. Well, the problem there is what if I'm not getting good at it? And what if I'm not improving? Well, let's broaden out the definitions here. Now, we can work as hard as, as we can that as coaches but ultimately there's always going to be individual differences so your daughter for example as a as a as a, as a thought here you know you could have a great coach who constantly reinforces the notion of participation and having and enjoying and tries to help her set task goals and is very much a motivational climate around mastery and task yeah. and still it just might be the nature of your daughter where she she has a little bit of perfect perfectionist uh, streak. So mm-hmm. the personality mm-hmm. characteristic of conscientiousness and very high conscientiousness can lead to a maladaptive relationship with, you know, activities that she's trying to be perfectionist, perfection, but got to, got to do, got to do, got to, got to succeed that sort of uh, type is it type A personality? You go yeah. back to the, the work from the 1950s, can't remember who it was now. So, you know, it, 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 we can do all that we can as coaches, but we've still got to cope with individual differences and that's challenging. And, and then we've got to get in there and help, you know, help people to, to change their narratives a little bit so that they can enjoy themselves. Absolutely. And now I, I'm going to take a step 
way back from the, the players and from the how we coach the team and go to the you know something we were launching a coaching the bigger game program coming up basically coaching the people side of the game for coaches on the big picture on the 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 what we're talking about today is is a part of it we're only going to hit at high levels all the different aspects of it but the first thing we focus on is self-leadership how much do you see a lot of these issues and mindset of these issues of unhealthy cultures stem from the coach him or her being unhealthy themselves unhealthy themselves as in well just unhealthy from a mindset unhealthy from a you know in their in who the how they're wired that they don't really see how people perceive them they don't even understand what their why is they don't understand who they are really and and how they're how they are being perceived by their team i would say look i, I think that let me let me frame frame this in terms of before I become too accusatory. Um, no, 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 yeah, and I'm not coach, saying coach, like coaching is no, 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 yeah, name. <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, no, but, but I think I think it's so important to to recognise coaching is is tough. It's hard. Ninety nine percent of coaches are either volunteer or they don't. You know, they, there's more opportunities in America to 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 to, to, to certainly coach soccer full time than any other country in the world. So. I say this recognizing that for some coaches there's less excuse they should be developing themselves better in my opinion without you know very respectfully I but let's start with understanding that coaching is, is one of the toughest hobbies or professionals that you can engage in so, so so there's that I think that we in psychology and as coach developers in, in in skill acquisition have to continue to get better at what we do continue to be able to communicate our message better to help coaches understand people understand players and people is in the participant players is in the learner performer is in the competitor we have to help coaches understand those landscapes i think so saying that where i think most maladaptiveness unhelpfulness lies is really embedded in the stuff that we've spoken about so far that there is that coaches will get involved in coaching because perhaps their definition of it or their lens of it is through the eyes of Phil Jackson or Bill Belichick or Pep Guardiola and that's kind of how they perceive this and I'm kind of caricaturing this but that that's they look at the adult elite game which in America, there's a lot of entertainment around this, right? The, the coach charging up and down the pitch. That's yeah. not to say that doesn't happen in Europe. It happens a lot in soccer. But I, 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 I wonder if that happens. Also, as I said earlier, socialized into outcome and performance and communication around those things. And a lot of the nuance and the complexity around the things that we've spoken about, psychologically informed environments, motivational climbs, et cetera, et cetera, all those things, autonomy, supportive coaching, you know, learning how people learn right. uh, how to deliver direct instruction uh, instruction game-based approaches teaching games for understanding a lot of this literature just it, it's just not there for coaches yeah and that 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 that's so we kind of got to forgive them but we've got to find a way to help them and i and, and i think that that's where a lot of the maladaptiveness comes from i think kind of alluding to you, you alluded to what i would categorize as self skills you know, that self-awareness piece. 
and I almost wonder sometimes if that this is, you know, rife through the world of coaching is a slight, not lack of professionalism, but a really we we almost need better educational routes that help coaches become almost like chartered coaches so they're more organized and they have those self skills in place and when i say self skills if i think about the self-awareness piece i'm not just talking about you know i'm talking about domain specific knowledge you know what are my coaching beliefs organizing that what 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 do i want to achieve what do we want to achieve mm-hmm. organizing that but also self skills around personality characteristics, you know, having a roadmap for yourself as a coach, being self-aware around behaviors and stuff like the stuff you said. Mm-hmm. I think that is often a missing piece as well as the stuff that I've spoken yeah. about. But isn't that quite endemic across everybody? You know, yeah. it's like self skills are they're hard they're tough they're i've got to be self-aware and i've Mm -hmm. got to be able to self-control and i've got to self-reflect and i've got to self-develop those are the four main self-skills that i would write about and that that's that's a skill in and of itself there's some personality science out there to suggest that actually some people possibly won't become self-aware mm-hmm. they can get some shift but not loads of shift and that's to do with our, the hormones that we release and chemicals and the way our brain is structured and wired into our dna that's the personality characteristic of of, of openness so yeah i i i think it's a complex it, it, it's a tough landscape that one but i do think as part of training we need to develop self. we need to give coaches the opportunity to develop self-skills we need to give them the opportunity to develop those biopsychosocial things around their practice related to the stuff we've spoken about already. And we need to be better at helping them do that, find platforms to help them and deliver it in a manner that is understandable for them, which hands up maybe even in the last hour at times I haven't done very well. So it's, it's we're all trying to get better at that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I know we uh, we could go on for hours and hours and hours. I have a couple, few more questions I want to ask, and a couple ask everybody. But the first is going back, basically on this on this idea. But what what is your personal why? What is your what is your purpose that you have, and how you know? I imagine you're living it out by doing what you're doing. But what what does that look like for you? I would say that I'm. It's interesting, you know. Not but in sports psychology, we often talk about the importance of writing things down and having a plan and I'm not a big writer I'm not a big writer of sort of having that plan and this is what I'm what I'm trying to do but I think if I was to try to articulate that I would just say I'm just trying to be as curious I'm curious about how good I can possibly be at what I do and trying to do that in as healthy and safe a way as I possibly can for myself and for my family I think that's how I would you know, it, it's several, I think it's three parts. It's how curious about how good I can be. I'm not necessarily saying I have to get here or I have to be there or I have to work with this team and because I just, so much of that is out of your control and in the eye of the beholder. How good do I feel I can, how good can I become? And that is in my eye of the beholder. It's my perception of that. How healthy and safe can I do that? And... Because I, I, 
more and more I'm understanding that high performance requires a balance. Sometimes you've got to be working your backside off because that's you've got to bring home the bread right. And you know, sometimes I don't like the word grind, but you've got to put long hours in, and I do. This is my life. This is a massive part of it. But we've also got to have time for other things and family where where we can. So I, I think that's for me that the healthy and safe part of it healthy and safe for me and family so that's how i would that's possibly what i would say to that all right all right okay you you've had this quote for me and i just want you to in in as as quickly as you can this is kind of a speed round so we're gonna we're gonna do the the dan abrams speed round which may not be as speedy as is but um (laughs) you said i i don't think i don't think you coach difficult players you teach them to coach themselves by asking great questions and this goes into that idea of uh, this idea of motivational interviewing as well. So what is the, you know, three, four minute uh, version of, of how you would expand on that? You don't coach difficult players. You teach them to coach themselves by asking great questions. Depending on what the difficulty is, but I think a big part of difficult players can tend to be, if difficult is the right word, it can, can tend to be players who, like, who know their own mind. They're quite low agreeable, agreeableness, psychology, uh, personality. Mm-hmm. They're quite low agreeableness. Often they know their own mind. And so that's great, fine. Uh, because I get a lot of coaches say to me, well, how do I coach this player? And I'd say, well, don't do this in a very non, or, or do this. If, if, if you're going to coach, do it in a non-directive manner. So for instance, sit in front of film, sit in front of video with them. And ask them what they're looking at there, what they're thinking about, and, and why they're doing what they're doing, and, and, and what their schematic, schematic of the game in the world is right there. And then ask for their permission to make some suggestions. And you can do this in a very light way, you know, just, hey, I've noticed this. Obviously, our principles of play and our game model is this. You know, that's why, you know, we think that this could be a better movement here, or a better action, or a better, you know, thing to execute what's your thoughts on that so really you'll start with giving them the opportunity to tell you their world and what they think and go along with a lot of that great fine fantastic then start to make suggestions don't insist because you insist and they of all people will resist Mm -hmm. what do you think of these you know i love those ideas i understand what you're saying I see this, or we see this as a coaching staff. The reason why we see it is because of these principles of players and game model. So back it up with evidence. And then, do you have permission? What do you think of that? Do you give me permission to work on this with you, to include into the staff that you know is best for you? I think that's good non-directive coaching. And that's where you need to start. And that's, I think, how you build trust with players who tend to be disagreeable around being coached. To finish off here, I think I'm doing this under four minutes. I would say (laughs) that one of the things that winds me up the most, there are absolutely players who are so disagreeable that could be construed as uncoachable. That probably does exist. But what winds me up is on Twitter, this notion of... Oh, you've got to be coachable, you've got to be coachable, you've got to be coachable, or you can't be uncoachable. And it's just like, no, man, sometimes you want to have players who push back because they make you better. 
they make you go out and find out more knowledge and or they make you go out and find better coaching processes like I've talked about that help you to coach them. Don't just want players to be coachable because that's the easy way out and it will never exist that everybody is coachable. That's not the way human beings function and I could go into personality science there but I won't because I know you want this in under 14 minutes, four minutes so we're done. Well, uh, you know... I I love personality stuff as well. I mean, we we train on you know using the disc, and you know it's because it's simple. But you know that that idea. I mean, actually, I've talked with the coach, my coach, who on disc is a high C. He's very task. He's just driven task. He's reserved. He's not, and he struggles a lot with it. So we we did disc, and I he continually is coming. This is high school girls, as I say. If it can work with high school girls, it can work with anybody, right? And and we we talk about it. And he comes to me, says, I, "I help me understand this person because you know he's not a people person, and so he does struggle with that more and more. And so, but he's trying, and he's like you said, it, it's helping him be a better coach. Mm-hmm. Having these, you know, what for him is very difficult is not as difficult for me because I get it more." Right, so that's interesting too, is that depending on your personality as a coach, it may be that difficult means different things than than the other coach, right? Because that outgoing goofball, for me, I connect with, and it drives him crazy, right? And the super intense, doesn't talk a whole lot person, I'm like, I, I don't get you, I don't understand, how do you, and he's like, he's dialed in, right? And so, I mean... I don't know. Give a couple more minutes on that. What do you think? Yeah, I I, th- I think that I think that comes under the banner of psychologically informed environments. Psychologically informed environment, a PIE, P-I-E, psychologically informed environment, is one that takes into account the thoughts, emotions, personalities, um, past experiences, and cultures of the players of the the people in your in your team, in your club, in your organisation. I think you've got to do that. I think you've got to you got to do that with reference to yourself as a person, as a as a coach. So I think that's absolutely vital. It's being a student of yourself and a student of, of the people in your team, in your club, in your organisation. And ultimately what we know from personality science is that, you know, if I was to take the big five and that's openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. You know, obviously, personality development is a little bit more complex than that. But if you take those five traits, then there can be a clash. I'm quite high agreeable more often than not. There's times when I can be low agreeable, but I can, I'm quite high agreeable. And I find very low agreeable play, people and players, when I come across them, challenging. It taps into my neuroticism. So I, it, it creates a bit of anxiety and I can withdraw neuroticism is about withdrawing going away from or going to woods mm-hmm. you know so i can withdraw so having a you know what 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 i heard you say really is have an understanding a reasonable understanding of yourself and have a reasonable understanding of the people in your team club organization have some kind of vehicle to do that whether it's some form of test like you're talking about and or at least have conversations with those people and or with your fellow coaching staff if you have the luxury, the resources of having fellow coaching staff and try to have something that underpins that conversation that, you know, like you'll use DISC and I might use NEO or something else, just something 
where where we can have more informed conversations. But you, it, if we don't have that, then we constantly just think about task and outcome and performance, mm-hmm. and you know we're we're missing the person. So I think psychologically informed environments where we take into account the person underpinning the player and the performer is really important. Absolutely. No, I love that. I love that. And I, and it, it takes time, right? And, and I do think going back to the both and, it's not just do an assessment and say, okay, now I know you. No, of course not. That's, that's the beginning of relationship, which is what it's going to take. But you got, again, you got to know yourself, how you're wired, how you're perceived. You got to know them, which takes, it takes time to know self takes time to know the other and if you have you know 20 or so kids on a team it takes time to get to know them individually before you can really fully understand how you can make them a great team together yep. so you know and and that takes time and it takes energy it takes resources and we too often skip to let's just be a great team together yep. and and that typically is is a shortcut that that has detrimental effect so again, we don't have time to go as deep into that as I'd like to. Maybe we can get you on some other time. We could talk about it. But one, one question, if this is longer than a quick answer, then which, which it probably is, but is there, in your professional opinion, is it possible to recreate the stress and pressure of a penalty kick in a training environment? Not 100%. Well, I, th- th- this is the challenging one because it just depends on how one defines the emotional load that you can put on somebody as a as a result of say a consequence so i think look how, how can you if we practice penalties we can just practice a penalty we can practice a penalty with a routine let's say so as a sports psychologist i, I might help a, a penalty taker a penalty taker develop a routine that helps them you know, manage concentration and commitment and confidence and stuff and all those kind of psychological skills. And then what you can do is add a consequence to that penalty in practice. So that consequence is designed to try to create an emotional load, a sense of anxiety, maybe a doubt, maybe a worry. So the kind of unhelpful emotions that one might experience when one's actually taking a penalty on the field of play for real, whether in the game or it's a penalty shootout. And so what can those consequences look like? It can be, look, it could be something like if you miss, then you've got to wash your coach's car, (laughs) which I think is quite a, something like that is quite cool because it's it's not monetary it's which tends to be the go-to thing and it's not so much that it will make you nervous it's just a pain in the backside when you Mm -hmm. miss so i i I quite like that kind of thing i've seen it done whereby a consequence was to be able to, to give up if you know the player who misses gives up their phone and teammates can text one person from the phone book which i think let's let's be clear here ethically one wouldn't do that with very young players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've even had somebody coach at the elite level shout back at me and say, I am not embarrassing some of the best players in the world. So <laughs> it, was, it was like, okay, then mm-hmm. we won't do that. So, 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 so you, you, and, and look, so it's finding useful consequences that you can put into a game 
where you're doing penalties amongst teammates. And of course, historically, consequences are often being punishment and rewards, punish, you know, go, go yeah. for a run. But that's not really creating much of an, an emotional load. And I'm getting around to completely answering your question in the way I tend to, slowly, because I think ultimately, if I said to you, Phil, let's have a penalty, let's practice your penalties, and then you know what, if you miss, you're going to pay me £10,000 or $10,000. Right. Now, you know, depending on one's wealth, let's call it 100000 let's call it half a million, you know, you're gonna you're gonna create an emotional load with that sure. kind of money, but you can't really play about with that kind of money. Right. That would be maybe the only comparison one might say, and that's still subjective. What I would say is the accurate answer to your question is no, you can't, but you can still do things that are going to represent the kind of behaviours that you want to execute in that pressured environment and you can still turn up the volume of pressure mm -hmm. so you can make it as representative more or more representative and more of an af what we call affective learning design affect being feeling those are the two things make yeah. it representative by making sure the players have to go through the behaviors that they'll have to go through in the game and affective as in add a consequence yeah of course, historically, we've talked about adding the crowd noise or things like that. Sure. How much difference that makes? Maybe, I, I, I don't know. But those would be the two things. Absolutely. I want players to practice penalties with a routine and then some kind of emotional load, but that emotional load will probably not be the same as on game day. Absolutely. No. I just, I just remember the World Cup when the Dutch team stepped up and hit side net five times in a row without even looking at the keeper, and I just go how did they get there because clearly well, dude, i'm, an, I'm an englishman i'm an englishman yeah. so we don't know yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're the worst we're better now because gareth and dr ian mitchell are great at what they do but, yeah. but we won't uh, talk about the last uh, the last one um all right last two questions we ask everybody what what uh lesson have you learned we'll just do one lesson that you learned directly from the game it can be soccer it can be also be golf since you're a pro golfer but directly from the game that you use in your in your family that you use in in the relationships there probably self-awareness and patience probably those two just just those would be the biggest ones just be aware of myself my behaviors yeah especially from a metacognition that's the science term metacognition you know thinking about my thinking thinking about my behaviors reflecting on those being self self-reflecting so i improve my i build my self-awareness self-skills hey i'm making this up as i go along self-skills <laughs> so all of those things and and so so self-awareness is designed why the reason human beings have self-awareness is for self-control and so to be self-aware of myself, to be able to engage in self-control, to be able to have the best possible relationship I can have with my family. It really is as, yeah. as simple as that, I would say. That, 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 I think, would be the main thing. Absolutely. All righty. Last question. What have you read, watched, or listened to that has informed your thinking on how soccer or other sports or golf, whatever, explains life and leadership. Oh, that's it. That's, that's your, you've left the hardest one to the last. What have I read, watched, or listened to? 
You know what? I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but just really everything to do with my own own podcast, and I'm not shamelessly plugging that, but just, just, okay. So I, I think that before I did my podcast, I was probably a little bit, let me, I hope this comes across in the right way. I, I felt I knew quite a lot about quite a lot of things related to what I do. <laughs> and then I do my podcast and I realize I, I know a bit, but I don't know that mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. And so that's really helped me help shape how I see my job today in soccer and other sports and probably explains life and leadership in as much as we know a bit but we don't know that much and we're always cliche to say, but we're always learning and striving to improve. It's okay if we don't always improve. It's okay if we don't always learn, but I think that that would be it. It's being humble enough to know that you know a bit, but not that much. And there's lots of people out there who can help you understand things even more, lots of lenses and lots of viewpoints. I think that would be the number one thing. And, and just if I may, number two things thing would be that healthy and safe scenario, that, that, that balance where, where possible. I think we can be greedy. I will sum it up by saying I think we can be greedy for performance and well-being. I think that that's possible. And I think on both sides of the Atlantic, in the Western world, I think that we think that we can't have both mm-hmm. and that success is predicated purely on a will to perform but I think that we can have both together all right good stuff good stuff all right no and I love what you said there I mean we go back to leaders or learners right absolutely what you talked about there and and I get it because I've done I've podcasted for the last six years or so. This podcast has been going for the last year and a half, and I did one in the orphan care world where, you know, that's my, it's my day job. And like you said, been able to learn from incredibly brilliant people in these areas. And, and, and this for leaders out there one, and coaches, like know what you don't know. That's a really important thing to do. To, to say I don't know is a is a very healthy, good thing to do because then it helps you remember that you don't know and you can go and learn and find the people who know more than you. And you know, that's what we talk about in team. We're, we are better together. Yeah, that's a cliche and it's kind of cheesy, but it's true, right? And if we, if we don't believe that and we don't go out and seek that, then we're going to miss so much. And I love what you said. It's like, yeah, I mean, people do come to you and you do know a lot. You know, probably more than 99% of the people, 99.9% of the people in the world on this stuff. But there's still that point one that we can learn from, right? And even in what we are masters in, like if you say as a soccer player, I'm the best in the world, so I don't need to train. Well, it doesn't work that way, hmm. right? There's, you can always get better. You can always learn. And so I love that. Absolutely love that. And uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for uh, for being a part of this show. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for just, you know, coming on and having this good conversation. I appreciate it. I was honored and delighted to do it. Thank you so much for the invite, Phil. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, thanks again for uh, for being a part of this the conversation. I, if you have any questions, I encourage you to to email me, Phil at howsoccerexplainsleadership.com. Check out the Facebook group and ask questions there as well. We do have the Coaching the Bigger Game program. If you're interested, 
coachingthebiggergame.com. Check that out. We'll have all the links for Dan's information, his books, his his podcast, and his website on the show notes. If you're interested in Warrior Way, which Paul Jobson, my co-host, is doing with his wife, Marcy, you can check that out at jobsonsoccer.com. And as always, I just hope that you're taking what you learned from this show and you're using it to help you be a better spouse, a better parent, a better leader, better just in everything that you're doing in your friendships. And you do use it to help remind you that soccer does explain life and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great week.